that intergenerational ministry kind of happen. Um, all right, so I'm off my soapbox for a minute. I might be doing this on Sunday, Sunday mornings more often just to keep us all up to date on what's going on. But if you would stand in, in the honor of God's word, we're going to read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. We stand because we believe God's word is the ultimate authority and far more important than anything I have to say this morning. All right, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply yes, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You may be seated. Let's pray. For this is the word of the Lord. God, I, uh, I come before you this morning in anticipation of you speaking to us, of you transcending my time of study and you speaking to us through your word, Lord, that we may leave here <clears throat> trusting you this morning more than we did when we ar- arrived, that we may lean in on you, Lord, that there may be even some in here that have never trusted you with their eternity that may do so this morning. Lord, maybe there are those that have and need to lean in on you again today. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts, transcend and penetrate into our hearts so that we may follow you more closely. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In Christmas, we talk a lot about waiting. As a matter of fact, the word Advent kind of means that, the, the, the arrival of an important person or, or event. And uh, it's one of the things I love about Christianity it's a subtle thing, but if you pick up on it, it's fascinating. We take words that mean general things, and we apply them to the ultimate things, and don't add any other qualifiers. Here's what I mean by that. The word Advent generally means the arrival of someone important, or something important. So Advent could mean about anything, but we in Christianity take that word, and we apply it to Christmas, because there's literally no more important person to arrive than Christ. See, we do the same thing with the word Bible. The word Bible is actually a Latin word that means book. But we call it the Bible, the book, because there's literally no book more important than this one, right? And so when we say Advent, when you hear that, maybe that's a new word to you, we're talking about the arrival of Christ. And, and I want to focus today a little bit. We're going we're gonna to have a transition today as we're going to finish in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and this is the last one in chapter 5. Not finish the sermon, I'm out. Finish it for now. Uh, chapter 5. Uh, we still got verse, chapter 6 and 7 to go. We'll start in the new year uh, in, in mid-January. Today is finishing that, but also talking about Advent um, and, and trusting Him. Because it's about this idea of waiting. As a kid, uh, Christmas has always meant waiting for me. Right? For every kid, to some degree, it means waiting. Right? you got to wait till. Christmas morning to, to get up and open your presents. And so Christmas Eve, you, you struggle to sleep and, and, and you struggle to because you're so excited. You can't wait to get downstairs. For me, there was an added element of waiting because for me, Christmas has always been driving to my grandmother's house in Arkansas. 
about a nine, ten hour drive from where I grew up. Um, and, and we were fiercely committed to do this. Uh, I did not miss a Christmas at my grandmother's until uh, several years after I was married. Um, growing up, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember a year when an ice storm hit uh, and it started about North Mississippi and went all the way through Arkansas. And so we had the discussion of, I mean, is it safe for us to drive through this ice storm? And I remember the, the decision being, no, it's not safe, but we're going to do it anyway. Because we want to be at grandma's. We call my grandma Mama Nifa. We want to be at Mama Nifa's for Christmas. And so it's always meant that waiting in the car without a DVD player, without an iPad, without anything like that. And with three sisters that make sitting in the back seat of a car difficult. It's always meant waiting. But think about for a moment all the waiting involved in the actual Christmas story. See, there's a period that we call the intertestamental testamental period. So the Old Testament ends in Malachi with a curse. And in this season of having prophets, there's so many prophets in the Old Testament we get to read from. There's major prophets and minor prophets and all these books of the prophets. And, and then for about 400 years, there's nothing. There's this promise, there's a curse, and there's a promise of a Messiah. <clears throat> and then for generations, nothing. For generations, there's passing on the idea, hey, one day, one day, a Messiah will come. You see it in the conversation, even not just with Jewish people, that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. One of my favorite stories in John 4, where it ends, the story really not ends, but climaxes at the point that they're having a theological debate over which mountain to worship on. And the Samaritan woman looks at Jesus finally to drop her trump card on the conversation or her way out of the conversation and says, listen, I know one day one will come that will be able to give us the answers to all these questions. And he answers, I am that one. See, they were waiting for God to enter into humanity and not only bring salvation, but also to bring answers, to bring hope, to bring the presence of God into us again. See, they'd only had glimmers of it, right? They'd had all these little glimmers. They'd had the prophets that would speak. They had the Ark of the Covenant. But it's waiting for God himself to show up. In your life, you may be experiencing that. In some aspect of your life, in your marriage, in your finances, in your mental health, in your children, in your church, you're waiting for God to show up. And sometimes it feels like He's forgotten us. And after 400 years, God shows up to most likely a teenage girl and lets her know you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. See, God is a God who keeps His word. Today as we finish chapter 5 in Matthew, my main idea for this morning is that the disciples, disciples imitate Emmanuel's kingdom ethic of unshakable integrity. Disciples imitate Emmanuel's kingdom ethic 
of unshakable integrity. See, we've been going through this pattern, and we've gone, this will be the last one in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We've been going through this in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus constantly says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. And so we've gone through these that are in Matthew 5. You can catch them on the podcast. And this is the only one we haven't done. This idea comes from several Old Testament texts. This idea that Jesus is expressing here. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you will be guilty of sin, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, which you have promised with your mouth. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Exodus 20.16, in the Ten Commandments, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. The idea here, obviously, is that we, uh, if we're going to make a vow, boy, we better keep it. We ought to be people of our word. Uh, but, but even it gets into this idea of vows to God. And, and so Jesus says, this is, this is what you've heard, right? This is, so, so it has been said, you've heard this, but I say to you. And again, we're going to say this each time. But I say to you, see, Jesus is the only one who has the authority to do this. Again, it's not to contradict the Old Testament, but to further ex- expose what it was really about, what, what we are to know of it. But I say to you, Matthew 5, 34 through 37, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make hair one hair white or black. Some of you say, I make my hair black every Wednesday. Yeah, you make it look black. It's not. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Boy, this is tough. See, Jesus continually takes us to a kingdom ethic. And, and so when I say kingdom ethic, he's not telling you, uh, here's how you navigate through a broken world. He's telling you, here's how it ought to be. And this is what it ought to look like. In other words, disciples imitate Emmanuel's kingdom ethic of unshakable integrity means, as followers of Christ, we should be people of such integrity that there should be required no extra assurance on our word. The people ought to know when you say something, your word is solid because you are such a person of integrity that it requires no extra pinky promise, right? As a kid, me and my sisters would always pinky promise. If, if, if we said something and, and, and I didn't believe my sister, I would say, do you pinky swear? And, and so she would say, of course I pinky swear. And what was funny is there came this moment where my sister broke her pinky swear. And so I said, well, it's time to break your pinky. 
And she looked at me like, what in the world? I said, what do you think we were swearing on your pinky for? This is why we swore on your pinky. At least we didn't swear on your hand. We swore on your pinky. So that if you broke the swear, I get your pinky. Would you rather me break it or cut it off? She just started crying and weeping. And I thought, there's no point in pinky swears if we don't get to break somebody's pinky when they break it, right? I later got saved and became a much more gentle person. I was obviously prohibited from damaging my sister's pinky. But I didn't make pinky swears anymore because I found that they were worthless. This is what Jesus is saying. What, what authority do we have to swear upon something? This goes back to stewardship. You don't own anything. Do you realize that? Go back to our stewardship sermons that we talked about. You don't own anything. Everything you have, everything you've been given is not yours. It's the Lord's. And you are being given the mandate to manage it well for the purpose of the master's business. So you can't swear upon your head because it's not your head. You certainly can't swear upon God because we don't even remotely own him. We are afforded the opportunity of a relationship with him. And we are to do his business and he owns it all. Now, this means it requires a pretty intense level of integrity. Matter of fact, so in our family, you've heard it before, we, we with our children, we have what we call the Stewart Family Core Values. You, you should be able to ask any of my three children, what are the Stewart Family Core Values? And they'll tell you. Now, uh, Tripp loves to say it really fast. And so if you ask Tripp, what are the Stewart Family Core Values? He'll say, respect, integrity, self-control, joyfulness. Right? If you ask Maggie, she might get through it. We're still working on it. If you ask Cash, he can deliver it pretty well. He might go fast like his brother. But we constantly talk to them about what it means to be respectful. We talk to them about what it means to have integrity, what it means to have self-control, what it means to pursue and promote joyfulness. And these are the things that we try to instill in our children. And, and we talk to them about integrity, that integrity isn't just when you can get called on it, right? See, if you want to know where your integrity lies you got to evaluate the areas of the life that are not inspected as well. See, we can all have integrity usually pretty well when we know it's going to get checked. right? You wouldn't blatantly lie to somebody's face if in a few minutes your lie would be dramatically exposed and you were aware of that, right? You wouldn't lie about somebody else if that person were standing there. As a matter of fact, if you've got a story that we call gossip that you wanted to share about somebody, ask yourself this, would you share that same story if that person were standing right next to you? Is there truth in what you're saying? When we get into gossip, there's also, is there any point in you sharing the story? But that's another sermon for another day. But at work, when you clock in, when you clock out, how many hours you give, what you charge, what you tell a client, are you, are you having integrity in all these things? On your taxes, are you having integrity? In, in, in the little moments, are you having integrity? Disciples ought to have such radical integrity that there be required no extra assurance 
No vow, no swear, no promise. But your yes be yes and your no be no. See, later on, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees this way. He says, woe to you, (coughs) blind guides. Now think about that. These are the religious leaders. And he says, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So they're saying, it doesn't matter to swear by the temple, but there's more power to it if you swear by the gold and the temple. And he says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. He's saying, you, you're making all these rules and you're making all these things and they don't even make sense. <clears throat> you blind men, for which is greater, the gift Or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Verse 20. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Now we get serious. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by whom who sits upon it. See, when we realize that we don't own anything and we start swearing upon something that isn't ours, we're really swearing upon God. Think about it like this. If, if you were to go to the bank to get a loan on something and you don't really have any collateral, and you're like me, I'm named after my father, and so me and my father have the same name. And so I could go to the bank, and, and, and so they, they run my name, and maybe they accidentally pull up his, or maybe even I misrepresent his assets, which are much greater than mine to get collateral on this loan, and they go, oh, James, you seem to have quite adequate collateral here. We'd love to give you this loan. I I am now getting this loan on the collateral of my father and not on myself. When we swear upon God or anything he owns, we're doing the same thing. We're putting collateral that's not ours. We're putting authority to our word that's not ours, which I think takes us to another one of the Ten Commandments, right? So the one Ten Commandment this obviously goes to is you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. But what about when God says you shall not take the Lord God your name, Lord God's name in vain? See, I don't think he's talking about an English cuss word because, as a matter of fact, nobody spoke English at this time. But when it says you don't take the Lord's name in vain, you don't claim God's authority on things that you don't have God's authority on. You know where we have God's authority? Right here. Listen, this, this, is, this is the source that settles all debates and discussions. This is the source that gives us authority. Not us authority, but we appeal to God's authority in His Word. And we should not speak on behalf of God our own opinions. But we should rely upon the Word of God. In James which many consider to be a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. James chapter 5, verse 12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Disciples imitate Emmanuel's kingdom ethic of unshakable integrity. The reason God calls us to this is we are called to be imitators of God. 
I use the word Emmanuel here to talk about God because this is such a powerful word brought into this Advent story. Emmanuel, God with us. See, see, God wants you to be such a radically, uh, a person that's with such radical integrity so that the world can see that, not so that they can uh, praise you or glorify you, so that they can see that the source of that integrity comes upon a dependence of God. See, we can't even fully have all this integrity until we are fully dependent upon God. Because why do we lie? Why do we sacrifice our integrity for our own advantage? Because we're concerned, we're worried about what somebody's going to think about us or, or whether we will have enough stuff. And, and so to provide more money for us, we sacrifice our integrity at work or on our taxes or we're worried about what people are going to think about who we are. And, and so we lie about ourselves. We lie about where we are spiritually when we fail to ever open up and confess our sins to someone. See, God wants us to be radically truthful. God wants us to be de- dependable because He is. See, God keeps His word. This is what we see so powerfully in Advent. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We see this all over the place, but I just want to introduce you to a passage you can look further into. Acts 13.32 begins a passage and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, you then see it fulfilled as you continue in verse 33 and on in Acts 13. See, think back to all the waiting. Think back to David. David was anointed king and then spent years waiting while he played the harp for Saul. Think to Israel as as they're promised a Messiah that will come deliver them. Once while they're as slaves in Egypt and they wait many years. And then even then, there's this 40-year period as they wander through the wilderness because of their own sin. And as the Jewish people wait for a Messiah, we, we, we cannot miss this. God will not always, and, you actually, and here's what I'll say, will usually won't deliver what you think you're waiting on. See, you, you probably know this, but the Jewish people are waiting. They're waiting on a Messiah that's socio-political. They're waiting on a Messiah that will come and take over Roman oppression and will bring them into a socio-political higher place that will 
bring them back into prominence and self-governing that their Jewish system of governance could then officially be their only governance again and they could be only under their own governance and have this place of prominence and no longer be oppressed or controlled by any group of people. This is what they were waiting on their Messiah to do because it's very similar to what Moses did, right, for, the, for the, them coming out of Egypt. And they waited for centuries for this Messiah. But that's not what showed up. But see, it's not that God's not going to show up and answer your question, your, your waiting in the way that you want because he doesn't like you. It's because he's smarter than you. And he's got something far greater to offer you than what you're waiting on. You're waiting on something specific to happen. This wasn't a general Messiah that they thought in just some generic way. Some deliverer in some capacity will show up. They specifically wanted a socio-political Messiah because that's what they were convinced was coming. And see, God sees such a greater picture and he may not feel like he's on time to us, but he's always on time. Now, it feels like he isn't so often. And I don't know in what area of your life you're waiting on God to show up in. But I want you to be prepared that he's most likely not going to show up in the way that you want. But probably in some way far greater. And his timing is always perfect. So as the Jewish people wait for 400 years, God times it out perfectly. And he doesn't show up anything like they thought he would. He doesn't show up as a great political figure. He doesn't show up announcing to the royal court that he's here. He shows up with an unwed, pregnant teenager in a manger. That's how he shows up. And so when he is declared, we see only the most righteous understand who he is. As you're waiting on God to show up, you've got to trust him. You've got to trust him in in the darkest moments. You've got to trust him, depend upon him and know that he has this plan worked out for you wherever it is you're waiting. Because our God will keep His word. Genesis 17, 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That God will be with us. He will be our God. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called, everybody say it with me, Emmanuel. Say it one more time, Emmanuel. One more time, Emmanuel. That word signifies the most important aspects of Advent. We cannot miss how incredible this is how God keeps His Word. Do you understand that God would have been perfectly just and righteous to leave us in our sin? 
Did you realize the Jews thought a Messiah was coming just for them, sociopolitically? But praise God, he didn't give them what they thought he was going to give them. And that that has been opened up to us as Gentiles, that we are allowed to become children of Abraham. And that promise in Genesis that we just read applies to us as Gentiles, as we get to be called children. This is huge. And we can't miss this. That God keeps his word and he will keep his word. And it's gracious that he does so. He didn't even have to promise this. He created us and we messed it up. He has not failed to be God whenever people are damned to hell for eternity. We have failed to worship Him. We have failed to submit to Him. We have failed to get our forgiveness in Him. We have ultimately failed to trust Him. See, sin, all sin is, is deciding I'm smarter than God. That God has given me a direction, a plan, a way, and I have decided I've got a better plan and a better way Because I just don't see him coming through the way I want him to come through. And I want you to rejoice when he doesn't come through the way you want him to come through. Because it means he has something much better for you. Because Romans 8 tells us this, right? That all things work for the good for those who love him and are called by him. This requires a radical level of trust. We have to trust him. God keeps his word and will keep his word. And when it seems crazy, think of Noah, how crazy he must have appeared to everybody. Rain hadn't fallen on earth yet, just dew would rise up from the air. There had been no monsoon, there had been no flood season. There was absolutely no logical reason for Noah to build a massive boat on land. And he trusted God with an insane plan. Because God said, and so he trusted. God may call you to something that just doesn't seem to make sense. Trust him. He will come through. He can be trusted. John 1.14 is one of my favorite Christmas verses. Because it's Emmanuel. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The greatest Christmas presence in the world. Grace and truth. See, He could have left us to ourselves, but he didn't. He became flesh. Do you realize for God it was a sacrifice from the very beginning? Not just the cross. From the very beginning, he was in heaven being praised and worshipped by angels where there are no problems in heaven. There is no heartbreak worthy of all the praise that he's getting. And he came down here vulnerable, humbled himself as a servant, disregarded, by so many that he created, murdered at the hands of those he created. 
so that we could be with him. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis. That we get to be with God. Because God keeps his word. And God will keep his word in your life. My call to you today is to trust him. See, one of the great things about Christmas is is not that we get to look at this story in, in new and exciting ways every year. That's the challenge of every pastor is, man, how do I preach the same story every December? I think it's incredible that we get to look at this story. Let's not miss this story. Let's not miss the grandeur, the miracle of what this is, that God has provided a way for us to be with Him. That we were hostile enemies against Him, and in His great love and grace and truth, He became flesh, He became incarnate, He dwelt among us and died a humiliating and miserable death. Because it's what we deserved. Do you know that that's what your sin has earned you? Or do you know that a God loves you so much? That our God loves you so much? That you can take your wretched sinful life and you can lay it at his feet and he will give you in return his life, his grace, his truth, his inheritance, his honor as we are adopted as former enemies into God's family. This is the miracle of Christmas. Is the unbelievable love and the unbelievable integrity of our God. And we know He keeps His promises. And He'll keep His in your life as well. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. And to be honest, God... I am often amazed that you love me. It is certainly nothing on my part that has earned that or deserves that. Um, Lord, I pray that this morning we would lean heavily upon you, that we would depend upon you. Um, Because, Lord, we need you. Lord, there are many areas in our lives that we're, we are waiting for you to show up. I don't know if it's in people's marriages, finances, jobs, mental health, relationships. 